Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. As we continue our study in this book, you'll find Daniel in your Old Testament. Uh, It's the last of the major prophets after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and before the 12 minor uh, prophets towards uh, towards the New Testament at the end of the Old Testament. So, Uh, If you have a Bible, we're in Daniel chapter 3 tonight. Tonight we hear uh, what may be a very familiar story, at least the outline of it. It's the story of the fiery furnace, the testing of the faith of God's servants, and the story of the faithfulness of God to his people. Let me invite you to consider Daniel chapter 3. We'll read the whole of it. So let me pray now. Father, as we prepare to hear your words, speak to us. Help us to see your glory. Help us to understand and be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth Six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices. Oh, I I just read that. I apologize. It repeats so often, I lost my place. That's a setup for a point in my sermon. But I didn't make that mistake on purpose. Anyway, we're in the middle of verse 3. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the harp, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship 
the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Joseph Stalin was the brutal communist dictator of the old Soviet Union for nearly 30 years. Under his cruel tyranny, millions of so-called enemies of the Soviet people were imprisoned or exiled or executed. In the late 1930s, in the heyday of Joe Stalin adulation in the Soviet Union, a group gathered for a local political meeting. Stalin's name was mentioned. This triggered a standing ovation and a dilemma because no one wanted to be the first to sit down. So they stood clapping on and on and on simply because of the mention of the feared Soviet leader. Finally, an elderly man, unable to stand any longer, took his seat. And they noted his name, and they arrested him the next day. He had failed to worship the idol long enough. Well, that's the kind of story we have here in Daniel chapter 3. Will the image of God that God has made bow down before the image that man has made? That's the question here. We are the image of God. People are the image of God on the earth. We're his representatives on the earth. That's what we were created for. Will we worship God or will we worship man? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's teenage Jewish friends, were confronted with this? Will they put their lives into the hands of the true and living God, or will they put them into the hands of a powerful man? In chapter 2, last time, we saw that God had given a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar, a dream that had disturbed him, a nightmare of this, this giant metal monster with a head like gold. And God had said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. But he promised, God promised in that dream that one day God's kingdom would come and it would crush into dust 
the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdoms of this world. Now in chapter 3, what you have is Nebuchadnezzar making a giant metal monster covered all in gold, head to foot. And he commands people to worship it or be burned into dust. It's a provocative attempt on his behalf to undo the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. And it's a political effort on his part to extend his rule far into the future by by forcing unity and allegiance around this giant uh, symbol of the Babylonian gods. And this effort is... It's, it's, it's a mix of political dazzle and Hollywood production and religious coercion. And it's enforced, of course, under the threat of the fiery burning furnace for those who won't bow the knee. But there are three who won't bow the knee. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so I want you to consider this story with us. And I want to highlight, there's so much here, but I want to highlight three things from this passage. The first you see in verses 1 through 15, I want you to just consider for a moment the pressures God's people face. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar makes in this enormous golden image. It's, it's 90 or so feet tall by 9 or so feet wide. It was probably even set up on a pedestal. And it was put on the plain of Dura, probably a few miles south of Babylon. Though we don't know for sure it no longer exists, some will point you to the fact that we can find ancient uh, fiery furnaces um, in that region of Babylon. It's an imitation, as we said, of the the image he saw in the dream that God had showed him. But it's not a perfect imitation, of course. It, It appeared to be set up in defiance of that image, as if to say, I can hold my people's allegiance forever and I will do it. And the writer, in telling the story, emphasizes, of course, the seriousness of this for anyone who won't obey the command But he also emphasizes the silliness of it. And I want you to see both those things. On the one hand, of course, he's very serious. He gathers the whole civil service. I mean, whether you're a satrap or a prefect or a governor or a counselor or a treasurer or a judicial guy or a magistrate or whatever you are as an official in the province, I mean, you were sent for and you came. And then he's got musicians there and it's a whole symphony. It's a cacophony of noise, the horns, pipes, lyres, trigons, harps, bagpipes, every kind of music. How these things made a beautiful melody, I have no idea. But they certainly would have been heard from afar. When they hear the music, of course, they are to fall down and worship. They're to bow to the image. And it's deadly serious. Don't do it and you die. So there's this enormous pressure on the exiles. Uh, any who are in the civil service government like these teenagers, because they are civil service. They've just been promoted at the end of chapter 2. What are the kinds of pressures they faced? Well, there's the pressure of authority, whether you want to think of it in terms of the government that wants them to cave in on their religious convictions, or whether you want to think of it in terms of their boss, their employer. They work for the king in running his nation, and he wants them to cave in. Their livelihood is in 
this authority figure's hands as well as their lives. And he demands their obedience. But there's, there's peer pressure here as well. All their fellow workers are doing it. The praise band gets to playing and the people get their backsides in, their air, in the air and their noses to the ground before it because that's where your job security is. Come on, man. It's no big deal. Just be part of the many who are doing. Who's going to know that you did this? So they felt each one undoubtedly like they had no choice. And then there's kind of the pressure to be inclusive. I mean, after all, they're not told they have to stop worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. No, 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 no. They just have to add another God to the list of gods that they worship. That was fine in Babylon. Just don't be exclusive was the command here. Don't be so... Oh, narrow-minded. You, you can have Jesus in private all you want. Just don't bring him out into the public and say, he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. So there's this pressure to be inclusive. But there's also, of course, the pressure of just sheer intimidation. Do this or you will suffer. You will die a painful death so there's a seriousness to all of this of course (laughs) but don't let the pomp and circumstance fool you here don't let the impressive soundtrack playing in the background you know get you confused about what's really going on here after all six times in just the first seven verses The writer here says it's just an image Nebuchadnezzar set up. (laughs) He made it. It's not divine. It's just a hunk of metal in the plains of Dura. It didn't descend from the gods. And notice the way he, he sort of mocks in the midst of the story. I mean, he tells you the satraps, prefects, verse 2, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces are sent for. But then he doesn't just say, and they all showed up. He says, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials came, right? Just look at the audience that Nebuchadnezzar has, has assembled for his musical. And think of the entertainment. I mean, whatever all these instruments are, you know these people weren't chumps at playing them. And when he commanded, it says, verse 5, with the, the horns and the pipes and the yada, yada, yada are played, everybody should fall down and worship. And then verse 7 reports, not that when the music played they did it, but that when the pipes and the yada, 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 and the yada, yada, yada played. It's, it's going on and on and on in a kind of playful way, saying, uh, everybody knows that this guy's a despot. My, how powerful he is. Look at the production. I mean, this is going to run on Broadway for decades, right? But everybody knows he hasn't really won anybody, or at least not, at least not a good measure of people's true allegiance. They're just afraid of the fiery furnaces, right? So the story is told this way in order to poke fun at Nebuchadnezzar's grandiose self-importance. By being solemn and sarcastic, the writer is saying, this is a fearful trial, sure, but can you see in another way how it's just a farce? 
A God that's made up? A God Nebuchadnezzar set up? That may not take away all the trembling, but at least you know there is no truth in it. And that sarcasm is meant to help the people of God in their own trials. When you can show that the emperor has no clothes, you can see it's silly to put all your hopes in him. How do you discover what your idols are? Um, You know, there are a variety of ways here. One is by what you get angry about. Nebuchadnezzar is furious and his face changes when he doesn't get the obedience he thinks he deserves. You can tell he is an idol of power and control. And it just rubs him the wrong way when he doesn't get what he wants. But you can also see the way that you have an idol by what you fear. What makes you fearful and afraid? When, when I make an idol of money... And the stock market crashes, or the true story, the stocks, multiple I've bought, you know, go bankrupt. If I remind myself, you can't take it with you. King Tut, whatever his splendor, whatever they put in the burial vaults with him, didn't go into the afterlife with him, right? Uh, And I can make light of it that way. And when I can remember that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions... And imagine that if it did, you know, where would I measure my life with what I have? When I can do that, I can laugh at myself forever thinking that money was worth my soul, my worship, my trust. And I can get on then trusting the Lord who is worth it. Or, or take, it, take the idol of a preacher, at least this one. Yeah, a lot of preachers do this, right? We want to be good preachers. What does it mean to be a good preacher? Well, I have two basic criteria. One is that I don't get up here and look like a fool in front of you. I have literally prayed time and again, Lord, help me to say what's true. Help me to keep from, keep from saying what's not true. And help me from, from making a fool of myself. And I should have put this in the notes because I'm not even quite sure how best to say it. Any public speaker, they say it's one of the most intimidating things that there is. You do it often enough and you get a little bit over it, but you just don't want people to walk away going, this guy's an idiot. I never want to hear him again. But then if I consider that God's word actually says that it is by the foolishness of preaching that he gets his work done. By just a man, a sinful man, Talking to people about Jesus and him crucified, God does what God's going to do. It relieves me a bit. Or as well, the other idol of being a preacher is, is success, right? I, I want something good to happen. It's not all bad to want good things to happen in my life and yours. Don't get me wrong. But, but it's easy to want success But when I remember that I can't make people believe, I can't put my hands in your ears and open them up and dig down into your heart, right? And and crack the hardness of it and put in there just a little drop of the grace of the gospel. When I, you see, I mean, it's kind of silly, right? But when I can, when I can tell myself, I can't do that, but that God promises, as Paul says, I just Preach Jesus and Him crucified, 
And I let the power of the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. So that your faith not rest, doesn't rest on the wisdom or eloquence of man, but rests in the power of God. Well then, in my saner moments, I can breathe a sigh of relief. And success no longer needs to be my idol, but my hopes are in God. That's sort of the way this works here. You've got to show that the emperor has no clothes. When you can see that your idol that you cling to isn't all it's cracked up to be, you can get on with the business of trusting the one who never fails you. You can laugh at the day of trouble, knowing trouble doesn't rule the world. It doesn't define your destiny. Your Father in heaven who loves you does that. Well, the story continues here at verse 8. There's the seriousness and the silliness. And then, well, you have the maliciousness of the Chaldeans who at verse 8 point out that certain Jews aren't bowing and worshiping. And they bring that before Nebuchadnezzar at verse 12. You hear a note of envy in their voice. Certain Jews whom you appointed over us, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they're not obeying you. You We kind of resent them being in there. I think this is a kind of retribution on their part for chapters 1 and 2. Daniel and his buddies so exalted. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is enraged, but it seems like he... He either likes them well enough or has respected the work that they've done, or at least with an eye towards the promotion he'd just given them, he gives them a second chance. So he brings them forward and he says, now listen, when the music plays, you know, put your nose on the ground and all will be well. But these three faithful Hebrews have tremendous courage. They face all this pressure and they declare their allegiance to the one true and everlasting God. Their faithfulness is an encouragement to all believers throughout all history. Whatever the cost, whatever the circumstances, there is no one like the Lord our God and no one above him or beside him. Well, how did they have such courage? The second thing I want you to see The providence of the God we trust in verses 16 through 18. This really is the the heart of the passage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And if not, so be it. But we're not going to worship. Notice they do a couple of things. One, they trust in God's power. They say God is able to deliver us. We believe that. But notice that they aren't so certain about God's purposes. God will either deliver us or he won't. They know Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. So they say we don't know what his will is. But we know he has a will. And he will do whatever he pleases. He will deliver us or maybe he won't. But either way, we will not bow in worship. This is biblical faith you're seeing here, friends. It knows the power of God to deliver us. But it also knows the freedom of God. He decides if and how and when he will deliver us. There's no calling down deliverance 
There's no, you know, binding the burning fiery furnace and keeping it away. It's just God will save us if it's his good pleasure to do so. And if not, we are prepared to die for him. In other words, friends, faith, biblical faith doesn't predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's word. This is no faith healing religion. It's not name it and claim it. They didn't lose sight of the crucial matter here. What mattered for them was not deliverance. What mattered for them was obedience. They have determined to have no other God but Yahweh the God of the Bible. They have chosen obedience to the first and the second commandments, even if it kills them. Like so many martyrs throughout history. Martyrs in North Korea, martyrs in China, modern, martyrs in modern day Babylon, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, other places. Martyrs who refuse to convert to atheism, who f- refuse to convert to Islam. Martyrs who refuse to recant their profession of faith in Jesus. Their attitude Like these three Hebrews is the attitude echoed by the hymn writer when he said, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad? To welcome endless day. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all. And I shall be with him. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trust themselves to God and his providence. They know Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? They know this is the day that the Lord has made, and it is. And they will rejoice and be glad in it, because they rejoice and are glad in him. And so you see a bit of the providence of God, the God in whom they trust. And the final thing you see in verses 19 through 30 is you see the presence of that same God to help them. And then Nebuchadnezzar here is absolutely filled with fury. His face even changes. He requires that the furnaces be heated seven times hotter than ever. And he's about to get an answer to his question posed in verse 15. Who is the God who can deliver you? (laughs) And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace is overheated, the flame kills those mighty men and warriors who are assembled to gather them up and throw them in. But the three Jews do tumble into the furnace as well. But they live. It's a sweet irony. The, The ones who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's commands die. But those whom he condemned lived. The issue then is not whether Israel's God can keep his servants alive, but whether Nebuchadnezzar can. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and sees four men unbound in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods, he says. Who is this fourth? Well, Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like this like a son of the gods. Later he'll say an angel of God. The text is not explicit here about who or what this is. It could be an angel sent from God, or it may be God himself in the appearance of a man, uh, 
what's called a theophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God himself, in the form of a man walking in the furnace with his people. That's my view of this, though I can't prove it from this text. But either way, the true God delivers them, and spectacularly, not even their clothes are singed. And so let me just apply this. What comfort there is for every believer in knowing not that Christ will keep us out of every difficulty, but he will find us in it and walk with us through it. Not in manifest, visible, miraculous, spectacular ways like they had, but one day you will see Jesus face to face in his flesh. But he is never absent from his people in their suffering. As Psalm 23 puts it, the psalmist says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The presence of God, friends, doesn't make our trials pleasant, but it does make them bearable because our Lord walks us through them, with him. What's your fiery trial? Is it a government that wants your supreme allegiance? Is it a demanding boss who wants you to compromise your faith? Is it a scornful family who mocks your beliefs in Jesus? Is it the threat of poverty, the threat of disease, the threat of death that tempts you to love this body and this life and this world above love for Jesus and his kingdom? And his promises, all the flaming darts of the evil one that seek to extinguish our faith. We need to take Peter's counsel to heart when he says, 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so, as a national day of thanksgiving is upon us, let us give thanks to God in all things. We cannot give thanks for all things. We don't give thanks for evil, not for persecution, not the evil of it. But we can give thanks in all things because our trials are from God and he delivers us in and through our trials with the promises of much better to come. Joe Novison tells the story of a man who sailed the seas back in the 1700s. This was a man making his living on transatlantic voyages, but was preparing to leave all that behind for a life in America. He's on his final voyage, traveling with his fiance when bad weather came upon them. The storm was fierce, as weather on the Atlantic often is. Waves higher than houses crashed over the boat. Thunder clapped all around, and the only light was the flash of lightning cutting through the darkness. The wind roared back and forth, making the night a frightful one. And as the man piloted the vessel, his fiancée emerged from below and frantically ran toward him. She was weeping and proclaiming that death would be their fate. And the sailor, seeking to comfort her, 
said, God will see us through. How can you be sure, the woman said. And the man drew his sword and he pointed it at her and he said, are you afraid? No. Why not? Because I know the heart behind the hand. And so it is with I and God. I know the heart behind the hand. Can you say that? The heart behind the hand in all your troubling circumstances can best be seen upon the cross where God, Emmanuel, God with us, suffered his own fiery furnace in the wrath of God against sin, our sin, to deliver us safe into the hands of our loving Father. And he never leaves us and he never forsakes us and nothing can separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great and precious promises. Thank you for the glory of the world that is yet to come. And we ask for strength by the Spirit to endure, to persevere, to believe in you and trust in you and to love you above all other gods and have none beside you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing How Firm a Foundation.